If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you. And we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though. So if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed share the show or written us a five-star review all this helps so much and we are so grateful thank you one way of talking about those forms of governance in which political life is not separate from what we might characterize as family life a term for that that's often been used is kinship. So you have the U.S. coming in, and this was also true in, in Canada, saying that Indigenous peoples need to be taught what true home and family is. They need to be made into nuclear family units. And so that breaks up these kinship forms, which served as not simply extended families, but as forms of governance. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Mark Rifkin, professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at UNC Greensboro. He served as president of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, and he's the author of seven books, including Beyond Settler Time, and his most recent one, which is publishing September of this year, titled Speaking for the People, Native Writing, and the Question of Political Form. Mark, I'm honored to be in conversation here with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So to help us contextualize the lenses through which you see and experience the world, I'd love for you to begin by sharing a bit about your background and what crystallized your interest in the cross-section of Indigenous studies and women, gender, and sexuality studies. Well, I'm a white settler, a queer scholar, 
And in terms of how I come to Indigenous studies, so I had been interested in U.S. literature since college and in going on to study it, right, to get a PhD in 19th century American literature. And I'd also, in college, started thinking about what was called or what is still called post-colonial theory. So work that engages with the question of empire, of the legacies of empire. And when I started thinking about these things together, then I started thinking in sustained ways about Native peoples, Native sovereignties, self-determination. And that became increasingly central to my work over the course of graduate school and then in my scholarship since then. I'd been interested in queer studies, queer theory, questions of sexuality and what constitutes the normal since early in college, but that wasn't really part of my dissertation work. But toward the end of grad school, I started thinking about what would a queer analysis of the kinds of questions around Native land, Native political forms, the U.S. effort to extend colonial authority over Native peoples, what would a queer analysis of all of that look like? And that opened toward what would become my second book, When Did Indians Become Straight? And I've been thinking about indigenous studies and questions of settler colonialism in relation to matters of queer studies, sexuality, kinship, etc. since then. I was particularly interested in sharing dialogue with you because through the numerous conversations I've had on the show, it's become clear to me that our dominant extractive systems and ways of being are often degenerative and dehumanizing. And particularly, we've explored on the show before how colonial worldviews of the environment or this quote-unquote pristine wilderness initially used to displace Native communities tends to be rooted in a story of separation, of human exceptionalism and supremacy that in large part has driven us towards self and planetary destruction. And so it's led me to kind of ponder what other colonial stories and ideals have we normalized as the ways that things must be that really deserve to be questioned if we really want to be more imaginative in thinking about how we can co-create a future that is more regenerative and life-enhancing. So in Beyond Settler Time, you look at the dangers of seeking to include Indigenous peoples within settler temporal frameworks. And for people hearing about this for the first time, it can be challenging to conceptualize what you mean by settler time, because time can appear to be something that is objective and shared. So how would you introduce this idea of settler time and what it means to queer temporality so that time isn't perceived necessarily in a shared sense as straight and linear from the past, present to the future? So when we talk about time, we often think of it, as you were suggesting, as this objective metric, that time is just flowing and we are all in it, that there is this real sense of time that is inherently universal and inherently shared. But even if we think from the perspective of physics, from Einsteinian special relativity, there is no universal time. As Einstein talks about it, that you experience time from within what he describes as a frame of reference. And so when Einstein's talking about it, it's with regard to matters of velocity, right? If I'm traveling, let's say, on a train, 
then I'm experiencing time differently than in the classic formulation, the people standing on the platform. And because there is no universal way of telling time, that time itself is specific to, in Einstein's terms, those physical frames of reference. Well, I want you to think about what happens if we think about frame of reference, not just as a physical matter, something like velocity or movement, right, relative you know, between two spaces. Instead, if we think about frame of reference in terms of what we might often describe as cultural forms, but not in the sense of beliefs about time, but start thinking about the actual physical, sensuous perspectival experience of time as actually different between different social forms. And to come at this question from a different direction, so often in the US, Native peoples are imagined as of the past, as disappearing or perhaps as disappeared. And if they are understood as in the present, often it's thought of as they're being residual, right? That they're in the process of vanishing. And often the response to that has been to insist, no, Native peoples are just as much in the present as everyone else. But then if one starts to think, well, what does it mean to be in the present? Who's setting the terms for what gets to count as the present? And there are a number of Native scholars, including folks like Audra Simpson and Glenn Coulthard and Joanne Barker, who have raised a number of questions about the idea of trying to include Native peoples into the nation or the settler state that asserts authority over Native peoples and territories. That the idea of including Native peoples seems to reproduce the ideologies of colonial occupation, that Native peoples and lands are just part of the U.S., in a similar vein, I began to wonder, doesn't that move to say that Native peoples should be included in the present with non-Natives? Doesn't that, just like the idea that they should be included in the nation, take certain ideas as given? So if you're saying Native peoples should be included into the nation, aren't you accepting the existence of the U.S. nation-state the normalness of that, the naturalness of its jurisdiction. And similarly, what would it mean to include Native peoples into national history or national present? How does that efface Native peoples' understandings of their own histories, their own ways of experiencing time, their own stories with regard to their connection to the past, their own ways of envisioning and experiencing relationship to the future that are not about a sharedness with settlers, that are not about becoming part of a settler colonial structure, the nation state. In speaking to how settler senses of time have been normalized as the backdrop in which we situate and contextualize everything we know, you bring up the example of how our dominant culture uses the binary of traditional and modern. And specifically, when we speak about indigenous ways of knowing, it's often framed as traditional knowledge, 
indicating that it comes from another time and therefore may not hold the same weight or credibility as knowledge that is considered modern for the present. So can you expand upon this to share how the seemingly common sense of time is actually not objective again, but subjective through settler lenses and perceptions of reality? So I would say it's not simply that it's that way of understanding time is subjective. It's actually institutionalized and imposed on Native peoples. So something like the difference between the traditional and the modern. So, of course, there's the idea of the modern. So and what does it mean then to be in the present? To be in the present means to be within institutions, ways of being, economies, philosophies that are largely structured by non-natives. So then native peoples, knowledges, memories, philosophies are then understood as traditional or somehow from a different time. But then part of the institutionalization of settler colonialism is then in understanding indigenous peoples as only truly indigenous, or in the case of the US, only really Indian or authentically Indian, when whatever is cast as expressive of indigenous identity, collectivity, governance, when that is presented as unchanged coming from the past. And so any sign that Native peoples have, in fact, adapted what were once alien forms, technologies, cultural dynamics, that those from this perspective of the traditional and the modern are seen as making Native people less authentic. So the Native people are not imagined as able to change. And part of the idea of that, the shared present, the problem of the idea of the shared present is that then change gets imagined as becoming more like non-natives as opposed to Native people having their own social formations, which are themselves changing, certainly in ways that are affected, deeply affected by settler colonialism, settler occupation, forms of state intervention, but that those native social formations are themselves not static and not simply of the past. So if we're trying to understand something like what counts as sacred space and can it be recognized, that the understanding of native practices of that space need to look like a certain non-native idea of what traditional ritual is supposed to be. Or if native folks are understood as having hunting rights, the question over a particular area, the question of whether or not they can use various kinds of guns or other hunting technology because they're not quote unquote traditional. Or in another vein, even the understanding of who counts as indigenous, that the logic institutionalized by the U.S. government is largely a blood logic. So that there's a sense that Indianness is a kind of quality born in the blood, right, through reproduction. This is itself a particular temporal understanding of indigenous peoples, which then doesn't understand native peoples as nations, 
as polities, as self-governing, self-determining political entities. So that then it's not just the question of understanding Native peoples as of the past, it's also denying the capacity of Native peoples to change in ways that could then, they could still be understood as Indigenous, and then also tying the sense of their indigeneity or Indianness to this kind of reproductive genealogical line, right? Where it's the idea that if, let's say, someone who is legally understood as Indian, if they marry a white person and have children, then those children are, within this logic, less Indian. It's that sense that moving forward, indigeneity can only ever be lost. Either it is preserved, unchanged from the past, or it is dissipating. And so that notion of a shared present does not necessarily undo those ways of thinking about and legislating what will constitute indigeneity, or again, in the context of the U.S., what will be understood as legally as Indianness. And I'd love to speak to that a little more. So one of the prime examples you give of a normalized temporality is the generic life cycle organized around conjugal union and reproductive functions, which you say positions marital couplehood as necessary for procreation itself and thus the survival of the human species appears to depend on uh, bourgeois family formation and homemaking, end quote. And this is not to say that people aren't free to do as they wish and believe for themselves, but through the lens of queer studies, what has been the result of the heteronormative social dynamics of the settler culture becoming the norm that most of society and even our legal system, policies, and et cetera, have been oriented towards? If one thinks about human reproduction as tied to there being a man and a woman, they have sex, they are children. That one of the things that can happen is that then that unit, the parents and child, gets understood as the primary social unit. So you get the nuclear family form and the idea of the nuclear family form, as opposed to the idea that, well, what you need really is you need a sperm, you need a uterus, which the child can gestate, an egg, right, to mix with the sperm. And then once the child is born, you need some sort of care, right, for the child. And that this, this process of reproduction can take any number of social forms. It doesn't have to look like the nuclear family. So then one of the questions becomes, well, what's at stake in imagining that human reproduction as such, right, the continuation of the species requires the nuclear family form. Well, there's a whole lot of other stuff that's presumed in the nuclear family form, including ideas about property, about homemaking, about the idea that sex needs to be tied to a long-term affectional romantic relationship that it's supposed to be monogamous, that the parents and child are supposed to live as a separate unit. And if you start thinking about all of these assumptions, right, it's notable 
that then that nuclear family unit or that nuclear family unit as we tend to imagine it is separate from other nuclear family units, right? They're existing as private or one might describe it as privatized units as opposed to operating collectively. So it's not a large leap to get from the understanding of the nuclear family form as natural and inevitable to capitalist ideas of private property, of households as atomized, uh, forms of governance that are utterly distinct from the private sphere. And all of these ideas about family and homemaking and property are imposed on Native peoples. But more than them simply being imposed on Native peoples, it's that the argument that Native peoples did not understand true home and family, that they needed to be educated to sort of the civilized form of life. And of course, this is, it's ironic that the notion of the nuclear family was presented as, and in some extent still, is understood as both necessary to the human species, but yet somehow also expressive of civilization in contrast to sort of less evolved social forms. But so you have this idea that Native peoples need to be trained into true home and family. And this becomes a way of effacing Native forms of governance. If you have modes of political life and collective decision-making that don't separate out that decision-making and resource distribution and place-making, don't separate those out from what might be described in conventional Euro-American terms as family, right? The forms of care and everyday resource sharing, right? A family, if governance is not separate from quote-unquote family life, then if you have someone coming in and saying, well, we need to teach you how to be you know, proper nuclear families, this becomes a way of breaking up networks of governance, which were often um, characterized using the kind of anthropological language of the 19th century as kinship, right? The one way of talking about those forms of governance in which political life is not separate from what we might characterize as family life, a term for that that's often been used is kinship. So you have the U.S. coming in, and this was also true in, in Canada, saying that Indigenous peoples need to be taught what true home and family is. They need to be made into nuclear family units. And so that breaks up these kinship forms, which served as not simply extended families, but as forms of governance. And so it's the imposition of the nuclear family, of those heteronormative ideals, which again, go along with ideas of private property and gendered relations of labor and the passage of transmission of wealth right through lineal reproductive inheritance, the idea that Native people need to be sort of incorporated into that system of family life becomes a justification for erasing Native modes of governance, trying to eliminate the existence of Native peoples 
as their own separate self-governing political entities and of extending U.S. jurisdiction and also in Canada, Canadian jurisdiction over them. Well, since we're at a point where more and more people are questioning and feeling our current forms of political governance do not serve all people nor our planet, hearing all of this certainly invites us to think about what societal organizing and political governance can look like beyond the current nation state settler framework. So just to clarify, what you're speaking to is that we currently in the dominant culture have a very narrow definition of family and kinship. And we also separate out our private and domestic lives from the public, which is overseen by this government that is more powerful and coming from sort of like a top-down hierarchy, as opposed to if we were to expand our senses of kinship and to have governance embedded within that in of itself. And the, the part of what I'm suggesting is that for many, many Native peoples, that was the form of governance. But I would also add to what you were saying that the centrality of private property holding to the existing form of government, that in many ways, the, the, I mean, the private sphere is imagined through private property holding, right? That it's central to the idea of the private and to uh, Euro-American ideas of personhood, which are largely organized around the idea that to be a self is to be self-possessed. And because I can own myself, I can own property. I am separate from other people. My property is separate from theirs. Family gets enfolded into that notion of property because they're the ones that I sort of share my property with, separate from those other people. But then the forms of what we might describe as liberal governance, right, which are dominant in the US. And by liberal, I don't mean sort of liberal versus conservative. I mean, liberal as in the political system for talking about how you generate and oversee capitalist relations. That liberal governance in the US is justified largely as the protection of people in their separate private property holding. That the idea that governance exists, government exists in order to facilitate people's private property holding and to kind of defend them in their separateness. So notions of kinship as governance, right? Social systems in which the what we associate with the familial is not entirely distinct from the functions right, of governance, things like resource distribution, collective decision-making, that those systems are not organized around private property holding. doesn't mean that there's not an understanding that separate people may own things of their own, but it's different. That's different than a notion, a, an organizing notion of property. Hmm. And this perhaps also informs how 
Currently, governance is largely based on rigid boundaries and markers of territory, as in if you're in this region, you're governed by this government over here. And if you're over there, you have a different government in place, often with differing laws and policies. So just to free up our imaginations, I wonder what alternatives we can base governance on, especially if we extended the idea of kinship to our more than human kin and our lands and waters as well. So it becomes more about building more relationships with our living landscapes, just like how friendships can be shared and extended and mutually cared for, rather than enforcing the idea of exclusivity, domination, ownership, and control. I mean, and, and there are a number of indigenous intellectuals, particularly indigenous uh, feminist intellectuals, such as Melanie Yazzie and Leanne Simpson, who've talked about the ways that ideas of kinship, ideas of sort of reciprocity and care as fundamental social building blocks for indigenous governance that those are also diplomatic principles, principles of relationships with other communities and with other peoples. And the, as you were uh, noting, the understanding of that is extending to the non-human world. So like Melanie Yazzie talks about the existence of treaties between native peoples and animal nations that they are living in connection And so it's, and to note that then it's not that, well, everything becomes one big family, right? There's still a sense of political entities, but what that means is then fundamentally different. What it means to understand something as a political entity or a political order or a people is not the same as the idea of the liberal nation state, where you have a government that is then set up over a bunch of private, presumptively nuclear family, right? Households all on their own private property, which lie within the clearly delimited exclusive jurisdiction of this political entity. That's not the kind of imagination of political orders, of governance, of diplomacy that folks like, as I was saying, uh, Melaniazzi and Leanne Simpson and other particularly uh, indigenous feminist intellectuals are articulating. Thank you so much for sharing this. And as we're looking ahead, as we take on and learn this more expansive understanding of indigenous sovereignty that includes temporal sovereignty, what is the role that especially non-Native peoples wanting to support indigenous sovereignty can play in truly supporting this in all forms and not maybe accidentally still enforcing the same colonial frameworks that we just see as the norms, because that's all that we know. So, I mean, something like, I I talk about this in the book, the idea of the nation, right, the U.S. nation, as inherently kind of becoming freer and freer and more and more true to the principles of liberty on which it was founded. And we can the idea that we can see this through the greater expansion of rights to various minorities who become part of the mosaic of the nation, like this as a vision of the redress of historical violence is a fundamentally colonialist vision. 
It takes the nation as given. It has this story of this temporal narrative of development forward in time as inherently progress, inherently betterment, as a leaving behind right, of the past. And so I think, and even in progressive and sometimes even leftist circles, there can be this story of incorporating Native peoples into some vision ultimately set by non-Natives, right? And it's, again, the idea of the shared, right? It's a shared belonging of non-Natives and Natives, which then usually it's not what Native people have articulated for themselves. And that the terms of that supposed belonging tend to replicate many of the assumptions of settler colonialism. So I think it's for non-Natives to seriously think about what are our political models, right? What are our models of justice? Where are they coming from? What are we taking for granted about how the world works and what political forms we're working in that we see as the horizon, right, of justice or liberation? How are those political forms and those political imaginations actually part of ongoing violence against Native peoples? How are those political forms and imaginations to some extent predicated on not engaging with Native peoples' own articulations of their histories, of their interests, of their philosophies? How do our vision of those political forms and imaginations, how do they edit out ongoing histories of settler occupation, of the taking of Native land, of the assertion of non-Native authority over Native people, of the imposition of non-Native social forms onto Native peoples, of the non-acknowledgement of Native people's own social forms and their self-determination over their futures as self-governing peoples. So I think it's, it's listening to Native peoples, right? It's challenging non-Native assumptions about what a politics of justice looks like. It's contributing to intellectual and activist struggles led by Native people. And it's also then talking to other non-Natives and engaging with other non-Natives in order to unsettle the ways that we as non-natives in everyday ways normalize the existence of the settler state, normalize the existence of settler colonialism, normalize the uh, occupation of native lands, the way that those things become just the kind of given background for what we think and do, and including it becomes the given background for how we imagine what a better future would look like. And we need to do the work of undoing that in our minds, in our policies, in our relations with each other and with Native peoples. And that in doing so, we need to take the lead from Native peoples' articulations of their own self-determination, their sovereignties, and what they as peoples see as desirable futures for themselves. 
There's so much knowledge that you shared in this conversation that I know I'll continue to marinate on after. As we're nearing the end of our, our time together, what else would you like to share that I didn't get to ask you about, maybe about your forthcoming book? And are there any additional calls to action that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I mean, I think that the the issues around temporality, which can seem kind of very abstract, very separate from kind of struggles over resources, political authority, land. I think I want to underline the ways that those are very much at the heart of a number of uh, most pressing struggles right, facing Native peoples. So something like the Dakota Access Pipeline and the, the struggle to prevent the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, part of what's at stake there is that you have Ocheti Shakowin, otherwise usually known as Sioux peoples, but Ocheti Shakowin peoples, whose own sense of their relationship to the Missouri River extends far beyond the kind of policy temporalities, right, in which something like the decision around a pipeline, right, is being made where you're looking back a decade, a couple of decades, as opposed to thinking back to treaties from the 1850s or relationships of care and reciprocity and responsibility that Ocheti Shakwin people have to the region for hundreds, thousands of years. And so the question of temporality is very much at play in the ways that the U.S. state does not acknowledge those forms of temporality. Or in another vein, the um, case that came before the Supreme Court last year about the existence of the Creek Reservation, Sharp v. Murphy. And the question was whether the Creek Reservation as a political unit still existed and the state of Oklahoma and the federal government in many ways had been acting as if it had been disestablished right at the turn of the 20th century. But then you have Creek people right, and the Creek Nation who are saying that if you actually look back to that period, which, you know, in most non-native Euro-American legal contexts would be ancient history, right? In, in what other kind of sort of legal situation uh, in, you know, 2020, would you be looking back to the early 20th century, the late 19th century, but that you have Creek people in the Creek Nation saying, no, we need to look back there to see that actually what you Euro-Americans presume was gone, right? The Creek Reservation disestablished, no longer present as, a, as a, a unit, right? As a legal unit, that actually that never happened. And the Creek Reservation still exists, even though you were acting, you Euro-American authorities were acting as if it were gone. And the Supreme Court actually found, yes, the Creek Reservation was never disestablished. So the insistence on Indigenous temporalities is very much a part of uh, Indigenous struggles, Indigenous articulations of sovereignty and self-determination in the present.
What is an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So I would say everyone should read The Red Deal, which is a vision for indigenous transformation and the ways that indigenous, the uh, transformation for indigenous nations is tied to uh, anti-capitalist movements um, globally. It's produced by the group The Red Nation, which is an indigenous-led organization out of um, Albuquerque. So I think that everyone should take a look at The Red Deal. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? So I think that trying to think about change as a process. So of course, there are particular things that one is uh, trying to do, particular changes that one is trying to work toward, but not to think about the achievement or the non-achievement of those things as the measure of what it means to lead a a kind of ethical, valuable life, but to think about the process and the ongoing process of trying to produce meaningful change as inherently valuable. Mm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? So I don't know that there's something kind of externally that does because it's in many ways looking around can make me really depressed. Uh, But I've been thinking a lot recently about the idea of what does it mean for me to be a good ancestor? What does it mean for me to think about what I am gifting to the future, what I am offering or how I am modeling, right? Ways of being in the world or what I'm trying to uh, make possible or capacitate toward the future. I think thinking about the way I'm living and the work that I'm doing is oriented in that way, I think that can give me hope. This marks the end of this episode of Green Dreamer. To support us to bring more conversations like this to you, starting at just a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's musical offering is Change by Inanna. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.